You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. Good to see you, and glad you're here tonight. And we've been, on Wednesday nights, having um, some, I don't know, I, I, I was thinking about this a little bit ago having some talks about worship, maybe more than talks. Um, But sometimes you preach messages that you know aren't aren't going to set the world on fire in terms of decisions made and revival breaking out, but they're good for our mindsets. And and sometimes we need that kind of preaching. And I think we kind of get, maybe depending on the background that we come from, sometimes we get into this uh, thought process that every message... Um, has to be an emotional home run and that every message has to make me run, want to run up and down the aisles. And, and first of all, we're in South Dakota. So, you know, you're not, it's the wrong South, you know, to see that kind of stuff happen. Um, but, but second, um, sometimes you have to eat vegetables. You know what I mean? And, and some of us don't get real excited about vegetables. Um, you'd rather have you know, carnival, you'd rather have the meat, you'd rather have the fun, the pota- meat, potatoes, and steak, and all that, but, but if you don't eat your vegetables, um, you've got an imbalance in your life, and in some ways, that's how I have felt about the worship series, um, and it's, in this, this, these thoughts are helpful and necessary, and, and I think we'll even see tonight that the, this thought is necessary um, because of our culture, and its impact on our mindset toward worship. And yet sometimes we can look at messages on these kinds of subjects and think, well, it doesn't really apply. It's not very practical. And yet we come to services three times a week and we sit in services this many times. And, and so we must know how to deal with this moment right here and do it correctly if we're going to please the Lord. And so that's, that's kind of the idea behind these thoughts. So First, Corinthians, sorry, First Kings chapter 12 is where we're going to be, and, and I'd like to go ahead and stand as we read it. First Corinthians, I keep saying First Corinthians, that's later. First Kings chapter 12 and verse 26, and we'll read down through verse 33. Um, and so uh, this, is, this is a story of, of Jeroboam, and many of you uh, know who he is, and I'll give some explanation as to who he is. This is after his rebellion against Rehoboam, and uh, he is starting to try to establish a new kingdom, and he's been successful in dividing the kingdom. And so look at 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 25. We'll start there in 25. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in Mount Ephraim, and dwelt therein, and went out from thence, and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, now really pay attention. Again, he's trying to build a kingdom. He's trying to establish himself as the king of this new northern kingdom called Israel. The southern kingdom is Judah. He says, Jeroboam said in his heart, now shall the kingdom return to the house of David. He's worried that they're going to all go back to Judah and David. If this people go up to do sacrifice in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, which is in the south, then shall the heart of this people turn again under their Lord, even under Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they shall kill me and go again to Rehoboam, king of Judah. He knew that if they were to continue worshiping down in Jerusalem, 
when they went down the next time, they'd think, you know what, this is where we ought to be. They would turn against Jeroboam and then he would be done. So that's his fear. Verse 28, whereupon the king took counsel and made two calves of gold and said unto them, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. Now, I want to point this out that, that I really believe in this text. He's not trying to replace the God of Israel. He's trying to have them worship God in a new way. Because they know the God of Israel brought them out of Egypt. So he says, I, I'm going to give us a new way to worship. I'm going to give us a new alternative. And, and you can still worship the God that brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of Egypt, uh, but you can just do it in a more convenient way. Verse 28, 29, he set the one in Bethel, and the other put he in Dan. And this thing became a sin, for the people went to worship before the one, even unto Dan. And he made a house of high places, and made priests of the lowest of the people, which were not of the sons of Levi, and Jeroboam ordained a feast in the eighth month on the fifteenth day of the month, like unto the feast that is in Judah. So again, he's not trying to replace, he's trying to compete with the true worship going on in Judah. And he offered upon the altar, so did he in Bethel, sacrificing unto the calves that he had made. Um, and he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places which he had made. So he offered upon the altar which he had made in Bethel the 15th day of the 8th month, even in the month which he had devised of his own heart, and ordained a feast unto the children of Israel, and he offered upon the altar and burnt incense. Uh, I'd like tonight to look at this thought, the conflict of culture and worship. Because there is a conflict between where we live normally, culture, and, and how we worship. And if we're not careful, we will allow culture to shape, to shape what our worship looks like. And that's the danger that happened here to Jeroboam, and it cost him a lot. Let's pray and ask God to bless his word. Father, we thank you for the word, and I thank you for this time that we can just open it and look at some thoughts that I think will be real helpful for our church, helpful for me as a pastor uh, to just remember um, how, how we come to the decisions that we do in terms of worship Lord and, and how we worship and why we do it and, and the best way the best method uh, that we can figure uh, based on your word Lord and so I'm asking that for your help ask you to help us open our, our minds and hearts and that your spirit would have free reign in our lives we pray these things in Jesus name amen thank you you may be seated it's amazing how different culture one culture can be from another um, even in the United States, culture in one state can be very different from culture in the way things are just a few states away. How many of you have lived for any significant amount of time in a state other than South Dakota? Okay, so that's many of you. Many of you have. How many of you would agree that in the places that you've lived other than South Dakota, there, there are some differences between where you came from and South Dakota? I think we would all say that. Um, so, I'm gonna, so give me, just, just from where you are, where you're from and one big difference. I'll give you one in Oklahoma, okay? In Oklahoma, barbecue is a big thing, okay? Barbecue restaurants on every corner, it's a big deal. Up here, it's kind of hard to find barbecue. Up here, they have chislick. 
And if you were to go to Oklahoma and say the word Chislick, they would think you just called them an inappropriate name. <laughs> they have no idea what it is, okay? Can anybody have an example? You came from one place, Brother Mark? In Montana, they say where the men are men, and so are the women. They don't say that in South Dakota, which I'm thankful for. That's the difference, I guess. Yes, Jacob. None of his, Jacob's co-workers here in South Dakota know what noodling is. Does anybody, if you know what noodling is, can you raise your hand? Okay, all right, there's a few. A noodling is what you do when you have very, as few brain cells as you do teeth. And you stick your hand in a hole... In a, in a creek or in a, in a lake and that hole probably has a large catfish in it and you let it latch onto your arm and pull it out. That's noodling, okay? They do it in Oklahoma, not sure why, okay? Ms. Sherilyn? In Iowa? That's just one state, I mean, just a couple miles away. Actually, Iowa, but it's a different kind of food. Uh, anybody else come from a state where things were a lot different? Brother Roger? Pasties. Yep. And what? Okay. A sauna. Not a sauna, a sauna. Okay. How many of you call it a sauna? Okay. Just the Ledoux and you. Okay, yeah. The Wassons from up there. So a sauna, not a sauna. I mean, we all have different things and, and if you grew up in one place doing it one way you think everybody else is weird okay and people in another place think that you're weird so it works out but you know culture from one state to another we just heard even in Iowa it's just a couple of, of miles away from our church right here and yet they have food there that we don't have here and if you and, and those of you who have grown up or have been in Sioux Falls for a long time Honestly, Chislik is only really just in this region. It's not, I mean, it doesn't branch out very far. Most people haven't heard of it. So then imagine then the difference in culture separated by an ocean. And when the King James translators translated the Hebrew and Greek into our English Bible here, they had a good understanding of what worship looked like. They, they understood worship when you said worship um, in that culture because the English culture, as you know, it's a monarchy and, and they, it's much different than American culture in that regard. We're a republic and, and we have no kings, we don't have queens, we have presidents and first ladies and governors and a congress and those things. And while we do our best to honor those that are in leadership, we do not bow before them, we will shake their hand. Uh, I saw a picture today and of Audrey in the Chick-fil-A drive-thru when she was here working in Sioux Falls and the mayor um, had driven through and she got her picture with him, you know, a selfie with him. And, and, you know, if that had been the king, probably you would feel less inclined to do something as casual as take a selfie. I mean, it, it was just, it's a different mindset when you see somebody in leadership. And the point is that the people of England, under King James in 1611, but all the way up until now, um, they understood the term worship differently than we do. I mean, we're familiar with the term worship, um, but we're less familiar with its biblical meaning. 
And that makes worship by bowing less natural for us. And we come by it honestly. It's part of our culture. But our God is not a president voted into office. He is sovereign over all. And we should greet him differently than with a simple handshake. And, and here's where we start to see the conflict between culture and worship. In that our culture has impacted how we view worship. It's made it more difficult to think biblically about it. And that's a dangerous place to be in. We should always start with the Bible perspective on these kinds of subjects. Rather than our cultural perspective. But, and the scripture then gives us some insight into how dangerous that adapting worship to culture can be right here in 1 Kings 12. And most of us are familiar uh, with Jeroboam. Again, he led a challenge against Rehoboam to show more grace than his father Solomon had. And, and Rehoboam refused that because of bad counsel. So Jeroboam then led Israel to split. And really it was more than a split. Uh, ten tribes stayed in the north and became called what, what's called Israel. And two tribes went to the south and stayed in the south. They're called Judah. And they continued their worship in Jerusalem. And this passage is immediately following that split. So Jeroboam here is afraid that if the people continue to worship in Jerusalem, that they'll start following Rehoboam again. So he changes the God-prescribed conditions of worship. Look at his motive in verse 26 and 27. Again, he says, And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now shall the kingdom return to the house of David. If this people go up to do sacrifice in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then shall the heart of this people turn again unto their Lord, even unto Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they shall kill me and go again to Rehoboam, king of Judah. Would you say that his, motive, his motives were, were regarding God? Were his motives then, would you say, were his motives political? Yeah, I would say absolutely. His motive is he's afraid that if they go back to Jerusalem, that Rehoboam will gain the upper hand again, and he doesn't want that to happen. And he, is, he has selfish motives. Uh, he wants to be the king, and he wants to build a kingdom. And then we see his method for doing that. Look at verse 28, and it says, Whereupon the king took counsel and made two calves of gold, and said unto them, it is, is it, too, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And he set the one in Bethel, and the other put he in Dan. And it, this became a sin, for the people went to worship before the one, even unto Dan. So he decides to adjust the worship. And the method that he uses is to make worship more convenient. He wants to make it more convenient. And he becomes yet, by the way, he, he becomes yet another example of a, of a political leader who shapes religion to meet his needs, which has happened many times through history. He establishes two new places of worship, one in Dan, which is in the north, and then one in Bethel, which is more toward the south. And that would have been much closer for those living in the north. They wouldn't have to go all the way down to Jerusalem to worship. They could, it would be a shorter trip. It would be much easier. And by the way, uh, worship, if you're going to walk to Dan or walk to Beersheba, I'm sorry, to Bethel, or even walk to Jerusalem, um, it, it would not have been an easy journey. You're talking miles and miles of walking. You couldn't just go fill up and drive it. So this would have been a very appealing option. To, I mean, if you can imagine, if you lived on the west side 
of Sioux Falls, if it takes you 15 or 20 minutes to drive to Eastside Baptist Church, but there were no car options available and you had to walk, it would take you a few hours. And can you imagine then how much more convenient it would be if someone says, hey, wait, we've got a church right around the corner from you. That, that's the, the idea of what Jer- Jeroboam is doing. And, he, and then, not only that, he chooses priests um, that are like the priests in Judah, and he institutes sacrifice like they're doing in Judah. And, and I believe that this is really, and I've already said it, this is an example of Jeroboam not replacing the worship of the true God, but trying to get them to do it in a different way. Uh, because I believe he knows if he's just going to throw God out completely, um, they probably wouldn't have stood for that at this point. So he says, we'll just do it a different way. These idols can represent the God that brought you out of Israel. And we'll get priests just like you had in Jerusalem. Uh, so no, the ones that brought you out of Egypt is what I meant to say. They will have priests just like the ones down in Jerusalem... And, and we'll have sacrifices just like they're doing in Jerusalem. It'll all look very similar, but we're going to be closer. I'll give you two new options of uh, places to worship in cities. And, and, and these ways, what he was doing, though, if you think about it, by, by building calves, making calves, and putting them up as worship, he was basically saying, I'm going to take some ideas from our culture, and I'm going to institute them into our worship And by the way, if you know anything about the children of Israel, they were always looking over the fence at what the heathens around them were doing. And every time, you know, idolatry is a big deal for for Israel. And and so now they're like, well, all all the people around us are doing this and and they have idols. I don't see why we can't have idols except that God in the Ten Commandments said you shouldn't have idols. But the culture was impacting their thought process and Jeroboam capitalized on it. So... His motive was selfish. His method was change the worship, make it more convenient. But it really was a mistake. Look at verse 31. It says, and he made a house of high places and made priests of the lowest of the people, which were not of the sons of Levi. So rather than choose men who would honor the position of priest, Jeroboam basically selected anyone that he wanted or that if they wanted, that they could be a spiritual leader and they even if they weren't qualified. And not to mention... That you know, it wasn't God's plan, so they weren't qualified, and it wasn't God's plan. It's a recipe for disaster. And the mistake that Jeroboam made actually cost him greatly. And we see in a parallel passage in 2 Chronicles 11 that something big happened because of this. Not only did the unqualified priests lower the standards of worship, um, but the legitimate priests and the Levites who were living in the north said, we don't want any part of this. In 2 Chronicles 11, it says that they, along with others who set their hearts to seek the Lord God of Israel, they moved to the south. And a large number of people that Jeroboam was trying to keep, and by the way, just as a philosophy, um, I do believe this happens in churches, when, when a church is motivated to change their style of worship to fit the culture because they think we're going to keep a lot of people this way, but there's always going to be a group of people that they lose because they're not on board. And, And so you'll gain some, but really in the end what I think happens is you lose the core. You lose the actual disciples because they see the motive for changing these things. 
And that's exactly what happened to Jeroboam. And I'd love to preach more about that. And maybe I'll expound that at some point. But for tonight, we're just looking at this compromise, this adaptation of worship to fit the culture. Uh, and, and it became that which destroyed Jeroboam. Not only that, it affected generations of kings in Israel who walked after the way of Jeroboam. Uh, They changed the worship of God to look more more like the culture of the land. And it was offensive to the holy God that they were supposed to be worshiping. And fortunately, adapting worship to fit into and look like the culture has never gone away. And there are plenty of churches today that have drifted toward a a more casual or seeker-friendly attitude... ...that seems to be patterned after entertainment rather than biblical worship... Now, I want you to understand tonight, I am not judging anyone's motives. I am simply an observer, and and you are too, looking from the outside in and looking at the methods that are being used. And the only conclusion I can come to is that it seems more like entertainment than biblical worship. And I, I want to balance that too by saying, I'm not saying that casual, because casual is a big part of it. I'm not saying that casual is wrong. There's a time and place for casual. We'll talk about that in a moment. But the rise of entertainment in churches has in many ways come in through the desire for casualness. Um, At some point, many churches began to target the wishes of those sitting in the pews over the one who sits on the throne. And the less that we make of God, the more we make of ourselves... And nowhere, though, in the Bible does it suggest that God needs or desires to be entertained. Entertainment is an occupation of the mind. It's a division. It's amusement. God doesn't need it. Therefore, it's void of spiritual value to the believer when it is introduced into the time that should be reserved for the worship of God. Am I saying that entertainment is wrong? Have I said that? No. I'm saying there should be a distinction between what entertains us and what we introduce into the time that should be reserved for the holy God of heaven. Not only has entertainment capitalized on casualness, but it's also thrived upon pragmatism. And pragmatism, we, I've talked about that before, but it's operating based on what will produce results more than what is right. And that's what Jeroboam did. He said, it's too far for you to go walk all the way to Jerusalem. I'll build an altar closer. It's more convenient. And actually, by building one in Bethel toward the south, you would typically, most of them have to go through Bethel to get to Jerusalem. And so he said, we'll put one right there. So on their way to Jerusalem, they've got a long journey still. They could just stop right here and worship. It's very convenient. And so that's pragmatism. The pressure to incorporate entertainment in order to get a crowd is a tempting concept. And you say, well, bless God, not for me. Well, but there are a lot of people who that appeals to. As a pastor, I would love to have a full church. And I'm not saying that it's for selfish motives, but the more people that we have, the more people's lives are being changed. The more people are being saved. And I'm telling you, that's exciting. So, so don't tell me that that doesn't ever cross your mind. That we'd love to see more people and we'd love to have an impact. But our services still, even if we filled this place up, our services should function to reflect God, not build a crowd. The scripture makes it plain that men do not seek God. And therefore, we've been challenged then to seek the lost for God. 
Psalm 10.4 says the wicked through the pride of his countenance will not seek after God. God is not in all his thoughts. And we've been given the great commission to go and reach the lost for God because they're not thinking about God. The problem is that many churches have adjusted their philosophy to be more seeker friendly. Which means that those that they are seeking that do not seek after God are now determining the direction and style and methods that that church is using. Now, as a balance, I, I mean, casual, I'm, we're talking about casual and we're talking about entertainment. As a balance, the child of God has the benefit. We enjoy God's presence anytime in any place. We can, we can meet with God. We can pray with God. We can have time with God. And God often helps us with daily tasks when we are very far from suits and very far from sanctuaries. We should all be thankful, though, by the way, that God wants to be near you. That God wants to spend the day with you and no matter where I am and what I'm doing that God wants to be with me and his presence is with me. And the whole idea of the incarnation of Jesus Christ was that he came to identify with, with us in our everyday lives and with our struggles. And this is the reason that he put himself in a position to be tempted in all points as we are yet without sin. So Christ walked in our shoes. He lived like we live, although he was sinless. But he lived as a human being. And mo but most of the Christian life, listen, just, just so that you understand the, the thoughtful, most of the Christian life is lived out in our day-to-day -day, day -day lives, if I can say it. To think that our God only meets with us during church services is contrary to his claim to be with us continually. And think about the disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24. I mean, they weren't thinking about Jesus Christ coming and speaking to them. They're walking, they're taking a journey, maybe going to do something for work or running some kind of an errand. And here comes Jesus meeting with them. And, and when Paul encouraged the Thessalonians to pray without ceasing, he was reminding them that they can meet and reach God even in the casual times. They can, that he is interested in everything that you're doing and he wants to hear your prayers. Listen, some of the greatest times of my spiritual growth have occurred in casual times. I do not read my Bible in the morning in a suit and tie. If that disappoints you, I'm sorry. I, I don't. I read my Bible in ca casual clothes in the morning. And, I, and maybe you think there's something wrong with that, but, but God still meets with me. And he talks with me through the Bible, and I can talk to him on my knees and in prayer. One benefit of being saved for a while is, is we have a longer span of time to survey how God has intervened over and over and over to accomplish his will in our lives, to protect us, to lead us, to guide us, to help us even when we didn't know he was helping us. We can look back and we can see his hand at work in our lives. And it wasn't always at church. Maybe it was in a car. Maybe it was on a motorcycle, Brother Roger. Uh, or around the dinner table with your family. Maybe it was at a friend's house or in a conversation with someone who took the time to listen and give you counsel. God works in our lives at all times. Be thankful for the times of casual fellowship and casual instruction and casual working of God in your life because I'm glad he does it. But we should, not be, we should be careful of assuming there's no need for a time of formal worship. Jeroboam essentially made everything easier. 
He lowered the standards and the commitment level. He made priests of unqualified people. Rather than elevate man's view of God, he lowered God to man's level. And, and, but when we have an exalted view of God, of our formal time spent with the Lord in his house, we see him in his rightful state, that he is exalted and he is creator, he is high and he is lifted up. And if he chooses to meet us where we're at, that's great. But let's not be guilty of lowering him to our standard of living, of adjusting worship that is meant for him and saying, yeah, but we're casual now, so we're going to change the way we do things and he's just going to have to be happy with it. Seems like a strange attitude, doesn't it? You know, his lowering of himself even uh, lifts him even higher in the eyes of the redeemed. You could read Philippians 2 and how he, he made himself um, of no reputation, came in the form of a man and submitted himself to the death of the cross Wherefore, God has also highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. I mean, the fact that he came to be with us and be like us should not make us think, well, he's just a casual God. No, actually, as a result of what he did in Philippians 2, the natural response is, I need to lift him up. I mean, the fact that he would come and do what he did makes me think I need to praise him and worship him in a way like I haven't before because I can't believe he would come and he would do that for me. Now something is imbalanced with the attitude that says I enjoy the casual times that I have with the sovereign of the universe and I'm thankful that he came down to meet with me but I don't necessarily feel a need to go out of my way to formally acknowledge just how high God is. See, the imbalance is this. There are times when it's inappropriate to be casual with the king. I mean, think about it. If you're born into a royal family, and I mean, I'm not even going to talk about Harry and Meghan these days. I mean, what a mess that is. But let's say your older brother is the king and you're not. And, and you may have lots of great time and you, with, together and you may be very comfortable with each other. You may have a very good relationship with him in the privacy of your own home. But if you're in Great Britain and you're in public, there are things that you wouldn't do to the king in public that you might do in private but are not appropriate in a public setting. There are times, and I'm not even talking about, I mean, immoral. I'm just talking about it's just not an appropriate time. You know, if you're in public and your, king, the, your brother's the king next to you and you play this slug bug game like I used to when I was a kid. It's like, bum, 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 bum. Oh, boom, slug bug yellow, king. You're not going to punch him in the arm right then. Maybe you, maybe you might do that um, in the privacy of your own home. But it's not appropriate in public. I mean, you'd be raked over the coals and let's say you just dishonored the king. No, so my point is not that we are trading all of our genuine relationship and singing and fellowship for something formal. I'm saying that there are times when it is appropriate to be formal because of the God that we serve. When we enter into the presence of God, especially corporately, it should feel different than in the casualness of our living rooms. And Habakkuk wrote, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. And yet you say, but, 
you know, Jeremiah said, call unto me and I will answer thee and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. Yeah, I mean, David talked about you know, being with his shepherd and there's a personal relationship. And so is Habakkuk wrong? When he says, you know, the Lord is in his holy temple and when we're thinking of him that way, let all the earth keep silence. So are you saying that Jeremiah is wrong, that we shouldn't pray, or that David is wrong, that he shouldn't cry out to the Lord in his time of need? No, that's not what any of, none of them are wrong. Habakkuk is right, David is right, Jeremiah is right. But they're, that they're talking about there are times when it's appropriate to have intimate fellowship with the Lord. And then there are times when it is appropriate to formally express the kind of God that he is. There are times of casual interactions, but there are times when it's appropriate to acknowledge the king. Isaiah didn't take God's presence lightly in Isaiah 6. Uh, John didn't on the Isle of Patmos in Revelation. See, the times of casual fellowship and learning far outnumber the formal times. I want you to remember that. If we're, doing a, um, if we're just going to take a, a, a study and, and, and just consider the number of hours that you spend in a week in casual time. I mean, it's a lot. And, and we should rejoice in those. But let's not be, let an overly casual culture convince us that there's never an appropriate time to formally and reverently worship a high and holy God. And we get lots of, listen, and, and, and I'm using this, I'm, casual has its place. And casual is okay in its place. But personally, I'm not sure, if we're going to look at the number of hours in a week we have for casual. And let's say you've got, you know, two hours Sunday morning, an hour Sunday night, an hour Wednesday night. You've got one, two, three, four, four hours compared to the rest of the week. Uh, is it too much then to consider that when I come to services and meet with God, the high and holy God, is it too much to say, well, you know, I don't get enough casual the rest of the week? I think we would all say, well, that's really not too much to ask. And so I want you to understand it's, it's not a matter of spirituality it's not a matter of right or wrong. It is a matter of appropriate or not. And casual, again, is okay in its place. Um, but I'm not sure that the place for casual is when we gather to meet with our father, the king. And, and this should affect the way that we approach worship. Uh, I'm, and I'm going to, you know, it should affect the seriousness, seriousness with which we open our hymnals and sing. It should, it should affect how we listen in a message. Teens, it should affect the things you talk about when you come to church. It should affect how much joking goes on on, that, on the teen row with you guys and girls. I mean, it should affect uh, everything. I mean, I'll just, I mean, just saying it, um, you know, and this may be dangerous. It should affect the way that we dress. And there are going to be times I know that you can't help it. I, I, I get that. But I would, I would challenge you to not dress like the culture says you should dress when you go to church. But, but dress in a way that a principle like we looked at tonight would suggest that you dress when you go to church. 
Does dressing well make you more spiritual? Nope. Does dressing well mean that you've arrived? Nope. Are there plenty of people well-dressed at church that have no, nothing about a heart of God in their body at all? Yes. But if we value the one we're meeting with, then we ought to consider dressing in a way differently when we come to church than when we are at home. Differently when we come to church than when we go to Walmart. Of course, that's a very low standard. (laughs) Pajama pants, that's it. I'm just, I'm trying to challenge your thinking tonight. And again, I'm not saying right or wrong. I, I am saying if you value meeting with the King of Kings, it's okay to not be casual because we're casual the rest of the week very often. And ladies, how you dress. Men, how you dress. I'm not saying, again, a matter of spirituality. I'm asking you simply to view it differently. It's a matter of appropriateness. And just as an example, last night we we had a Lord's Supper service. And in many ways, it was like a funeral. Because we were focused on the death of Jesus Christ. And those of you that were here, then you know we approached it appropriately for the occasion. I mean, we didn't come in and we didn't show a funny video to, get, to loosen the crowd up. And you might do that at a youth rally. Uh, you might do that in a different setting, but we wouldn't do that um, on, on Lord's Supper night. We might even do that sometime in a service on a big day, show a, a video about you know, a funny Father's Day video or something. We've done that before. But at the Lord's Supper, it's not appropriate. It's not the time for it. And in many ways, it was like a funeral because of the occasion. And there, and there are plenty of times to dress casually and act casually. And there are plenty of opportunities throughout the week to be entertained. They're not wrong. But is it appropriate to bring that mindset into our worship of a holy God? That's the question. It's not so much about right and wrong as it is about what is appropriate. I just want to remind you about Luke 14. And we don't have to turn there. When Christ was giving... Um, his requirements for discipleship. Um, He made it clear that the discipleship wasn't fun and games all the time. And he he said Christ should be first before family. Christ should be first before yourself. Christ should be first before your possessions. Those things should be second to Jesus Christ in your life. And then he even talks about there before you commit, make sure you're willing to count the cost. And it doesn't sound, if you read Jesus Christ's Luke 14 account of what is required to be a disciple, it doesn't sound to me like Jesus was thinking, this is going to be really easy. He doesn't say this is going to be convenient. He doesn't say this is going to be casual in terms of commitment. Now, if you say, I'm, you know, he's casually involved, means you're just kind of halfway involved. It doesn't mean, he doesn't say that. He says this is a full-time commitment. This is a, a serious commitment. He wasn't talking about entertainment. He was talking, honestly, he was saying it's going to be very often the opposite of fun. Because following me as a disciple is not going to just be fun. Developing disciples, that's our responsibility. And we can make all the excuses we want about the current culture. But if a church is to be built like Jesus intended, then disciples have to be made. 
And the reason that we try to do things the way that we do them is if we, if we change the way that we operate as a church, then we will start to develop consumers who simply come in for the convenience to be entertained, to have a good time. And then as they come in and we start building a church and adding numbers, then we find out the way to keep them is to entertain them, give them a good time, and make it convenient. So then we start making concessions in order to keep doing that. Whereas if our goal is to build disciples, like the Bible says, then, then will it be entertaining at times? Yes, because sometimes the pastor won't know when the offertory is over. And will there be some funny things said? Yes. And will, it, will there be times of good fellowship? Yes. But, but generally speaking, when we come, it's not about entertainment. It's not about convenience. And it's not about fun. It is about worshiping a God who deserves it. You know, if we were to do everything in a convenient way or for fun or for ease, then probably we wouldn't do the Lord's Supper on an off night and make you come two nights during the same week. We wouldn't have a men's prayer meeting at 745. And honestly, like some churches, we might even would say, you know what, if you don't like getting up on Sunday mornings, we'll have a Saturday night service. Just so that it's convenient for you. I'm not saying that all those things are wrong. I'm giving you the reasons why, personally, as your pastor, I don't feel led to do them. Because the more we do those kinds of things, the more we develop consumers... And the less we develop disciples. And our job, Eastside Baptist Church, our job is to produce disciples. Consumers want convenient. They want easy. They want entertainment. A.W. Tozer, though, said this. The church that can't worship must be entertained. And leaders who can't lead a church to worship must provide the entertainment. And I am not an entertainer. So I want to let you know as a church, I commit to prioritize biblical mindsets and philosophies. I'm not saying I have the answer to everything. I'm not saying that I know, you know, every, at every move exactly what we're supposed to do. I'm going to make plenty of mistakes. But I can tell you this, in my heart, I'm committing to prioritizing biblical mindsets. And I commit to value biblical worship. Instead of turning to convenience or ease or entertainment, let's commit ourselves to worship on a disciple level. And I know that this puts us at conflict with our culture. But I'd rather answer for trying to keep it biblical than one day have to explain to the Lord my reasons for making it cultural. I'm going to say that one more time so that you know this pastor's heart. I'd rather answer for trying my best to keep it biblical than have to explain to the Lord one day my reasons for making it cultural. So how seriously do you take the worship when you come? Is it about God, young people, or is it about your friends? Because it's about, it should be about the Lord. How bored do you get because it's not entertaining? I mean, that, it happens, I know. And, but if you constantly find yourself bored, then probably you've lost sight of the reason you're here. How much does it cost you to be a disciple at Eastside? 
Do you have anything that you're committed to during the week? Is there anything that you're improving or working on? Maybe a change of mind is in order because consumers look for easy. They look for entertaining and they look for convenient. But disciples prioritize humility and service no matter what it looks like. And I'm telling you, that's going to be countercultural. But I would rather be a countercultured cultural disciple than a consumer just going right along with everybody else and not really being all that committed. Listen, that's the choice that, we're, that we have to make. And I'd rather err on the side of disciple. I hope that you understand the mindset tonight and even the applications and that you will take these truths and apply them to the way that you approach worship and how seriously you take your responsibility here at Eastside to help produce disciples. Let's stand together. We'll have a verse of invitation here and uh, Jacob will come and sing. And I want to encourage you tonight uh, to evaluate your approach to worship. How serious have you been about it? Is it just something that you go through the motions with? Is it something maybe that the Lord's working on your heart about with your level of, of formality? And, and maybe you're, you're looking for it to be easy when it's not supposed to be. Now, will it be enjoyable? Yes. And rewarding? Yes. That doesn't always mean it's easy. Sometimes the hardest things are most enjoyable. Sometimes the most difficult things are the most rewarding. And we have to get past the mindset that it has to be easy for me to enjoy it. I want to encourage you tonight to really ask the Lord to change your mind about your approach to worship. Just because it's against the culture we live in doesn't mean that we have, uh, that we have free reign to do However, however we want. That Jeroboam, it got him in a lot of trouble when he went down that path. And I don't want to go down that path. So let's pray and ask God to bless us and help us and give us some direction tonight in applying it to our own hearts. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.